The Cambridge Film Show on Cambridge 105 Radio. Hello and welcome to the Cambridge Film Show, your fortnightly insight into films great and small, guiding the city in South Cambridgeshire through the deep end of cinema releases and the latest to drop on streaming services here on Cambridge 105 Radio. So now take a deep breath, lean back and get lost in our expert takes here in the studio. I'm Lorcan O'Neill, and with me today on this uh, delightful spring afternoon are Emma Marchant. Hi there. Stuart Pask. Hello there. Uh, Luke Irwin. Good afternoon. And Miles Marchant. Hello. Uh, we have a white host of films to go through today. Uh, Tom cruises back into the pilot seat, showing up a fresh crop of lovable cadets at the notorious flight school in Top Gun Maverick. A night out takes a dark turn when three college students must make a very careful decision in the new Amazon Prime original Emergency. We visit the Belchers on Ocean Avenue as animation hit sitcom hit Bob's Burgers finally gets the big screen treatment after a whopping 12 seasons. We get veritably grunged in nostalgia with Disney's meta Chip down memory lane and an ode to Saturday morning cartoons and Chip and Dale Rescue Rangers, a Who Framed Roger Rabbit for Gen Z or millennials or parents or kids or all of the above. And finally, we spend an unusual summer with a group of children who should probably have more supervised play in the buzzy original Nordic horror The Innocents. But first, before finding out what Maverick is up to these days, love them or hate them, let's revisit Goose, Iceman, Viper, and the whole gang from the original 1986 classic, Top Gun. I'm gonna send you up against the best. Yes, sir! You two characters are going to Top Gun. I feel the need, the need for speed. Five weeks, you're going to fly against the best fighter pilots in the world. You guys really are cowboys. I don't like you because you're unsafe. That's right. I am dangerous. The wild card. Lies by the seat of his pants. Yeah, I guess when I see something, I go right after it. It takes a lot more than just fancy flying. Film in this school is about combat. Edging closer to its 40th anniversary, aren't we all, Tony Scott's campy action epic told the story of a young hotshot pilot breaking all the rules and taking all the glory. When he's sent to the top fighter pilot school in the Navy, tensions rise amongst his peers as each battle to be the cream of the crop while enemy forces gather in classic Cold War tactics. Um, I only really have one question for this, uh, but I wanted to ask each of you, because uh, for me, Top Gun is one of those films that's uh, oddly a time capsule and timeless. Uh, it's the archetypical story of a daredevil coming to maturity with unending waves of wonderful 80s popcorny goodness. Um, so Emma, what does Top Gun mean to you? Oh, that's such a question. This came out in 1986. Some of us are not rushing towards our 14th anniversary. Some of us are way past that. It was the first 15 certificate I ever saw at the cinema at the age of 13. It came out the first year I went to America. So I was totally into that whole like bombastic military yee-haw yanks kind of thing. But as I was, and it, it was, it, you know, it's kind of, it was the film that sort of maybe took Tom Cruise from being a member of, of almost the Brat Pack into strategy, into, who we, you know, and then spend the next 30 years becoming the Tom Cruise we know. It is eminently quotable it has the zingiest script i mean every just listening to that trailer there i was like that's right i am dangerous i love it ice man it's so it's just it and it was something that spoke to my father for example grew up on an ox near an oxygen air base a massive you know plane spotter if you like in the 1940s and for him then at the age of 40 to see a film like that that, that filmed planes like that, that that you know that went as far as it did with that because it was like nothing no one and we hadn't seen anything like that on the screen before so it just is 
it like you say, and it hasn't it has not aged. Well, we'll see if it's aged because obviously no one else saw it. I suppose when it came out of the cinema, but for me, it hasn't aged, and I can sit down and watch the whole thing from start to finish over and over again. So reliving that that experience of watching it for the first time. Yeah, and just and enjoying watching, and I think just enjoying watching it from a sort of more mature perspective now, and also enjoying watching, like I say, Tom Cruise bursting onto the screen almost forty years ago now within the kind of Tom Cruise supernova that we know, if you like. So. Uh, Luke, what does is, what is Top Gun mean to you? So I am a generation or two, perhaps, um, later to the Top Gun party. So I think for, for someone around my age, we're sort of introduced to Top Gun through the, the cultural cachet that it has. I think probably my um, introduction to it was that crunchy nut advert. I don't know if anyone <laughs> remembers where they, they play the Berlin song and you get the, the hair blowing back. And I think when I did see it several years later, you're expecting something that the film isn't necessarily. I think it's it's become almost inseparable from the caricature that it's um, perceived as, but the film itself is a lot more nuanced. Um, and I think if you haven't already seen First Top Gun, you will be surprised by what you uh, watch. Cool. Directed uh, at you, Stuart. <laughs> uh, Miles, as the uh, kind of youngest in the crowd today, um, what, what, what's your experience with Top Gun? Um, well, I first saw the movie at a showing in Audley End outside a like big stately home. It was very late at night, so everyone was kind of tired. But I remember watching it, and I don't know I felt I liked it quite a lot. But I was quite young at the time, so my criticism may not be... Not criticism, my speaking may not be so in-depth. I feel like, looking back on it, I agree with the fact that it has a really funny script if you rewatch some of the scenes. Uh, it's, it is the movie that kind of made Tom Cruise who he is today. And it didn't really... I, I liked it quite a lot, but it didn't speak to me as much as it did to my mum or to Luke probably because of the age I watched that, but I, I do like it. I think it's re-watching it. It's quite a nice trip down memory lane, and, you know, it's just just solid. So as a, as a trip down memory lane, do we think it's aged well, or is it...? I do think it's aged well. I think Tom Cruise, honestly, still looks the same somehow. <laughs> somehow. He, <laughs> he is a magical unicorn. <laughs> I yeah. think, well, we'll talk about Top Gun Maverick in a minute, obviously, yes. and... You know, one of not to this isn't a split, but you know, the, the tight they take the entire title seat, it's the same title, and that I just love that. And I do think the music maybe dates it a bit, but who doesn't still love a bit of Danger Zone or Take My Breath Away, to be honest? Who can't still, you know, and it, it, it just is a heady sensation of California nights and sunshine and motorbikes. And it's helpful, of course, it's all in uniform, so it hasn't dated, let's say, like other 80s films have in terms of costuming or details because they're in a military school and pretty much military men have looked the same since 1940 to 2020. So that helps. So just real quick, what, what do each of you, um, what were each of you hoping to get from Top Gun Maverick as a, a genuinely positive experience from the first one? I was hoping not to be severely disappointed because how often do you get these films, that are, these sequels that are released 30 years after the original yeah. and they're anything other than awful cash grabs? Yeah. I think the, the um, positive sign is that Tom Cruise signed up to do it um, he has a pretty good track record with his decision-making. Um, so that, that um, fared well 
for, for what I was expecting. I would say I was hoping for more of the same, so let's sure. find out if we got more of well, the let, same. Let, indeed, let's find out if we got else. any more of the same. So now on to the main event. Uh, let's, uh, let's spend some time with the top 1% you might actually want to be around. What do we have here? Yeah, here I thought we were special. Fellas, this here's Bagman. Hangman. Whatever. What the hell kind of mission is this? Everyone here is the best there is. Who the hell are they going to get to teach us? Captain Pete Maverick Mitchell. Let me be perfectly blunt. You are not my first choice. You were here at the request of Admiral Kazansky, AKA Iceman. He seems to think that you have something left to offer the Navy. What that is, I can't imagine. With all due respect, sir, I'm not a teacher. Not exactly breaking Mach 10 as it raced into screens, Top Gun Maverick was one of the most, if not the most, delayed release due to COVID. Originally slated for summer 2020, here we are two years later to join Tom Cruise as he's requested by the Miramar Flat Fighter School to teach a new breed of top-tier fighter pilots, including Rooster, son of Maverick's ill-fated friend Goose, played by Miles Teller, to complete a mission so treacherous no one may survive. And that's where Pete Maverick Mitchell comes in. Emma... Did this film take your breath away? <laughs> I, I so we went to go and see this at the on the IMAX viewing a week on, on the in the charity preview. So I did get to go and see it a week early, and honestly, I would think I was kind of literally vibrating at a level of, of excitement that I don't know if I've ever experienced going into the cinema, which is just so bizarre. It is awesome. If you do not have a rollicking good time watching this film, if you are not entertained, if you are not blown away by the sheer sort of dazzling hard work and, and, and this is this always makes me think a bit of um we were just talking about seeing in the rain oddly when we, before we came on it makes me think of gene kelly and the fact that he liked you know fred astaire and gene kelly and their dancing i am going somewhere with this people <laughs> and fred astaire always wanted to make it effortless and gene kelly was always he wanted to make sure people knew how hard he works to dance that well and what i love about tom cruise is he wants to show you just how hard everyone has worked to bring that film in and they have done and tom cruise in particular the storyline is different from the first one and it is almost a storyline where Tom Cruise and Pete Mitchell also almost become the same person here he is teaching new actors how to go about it and how to be him slash teaching new, new recruits how do you know do this but it's he's got great support Tom um John Hamm is really fun in it good to see Jennifer Connelly back not in a, an amazingly huge role but I think she brings a, a, a sweetness and a tenderness to the role of Penny Benjamin which is great you see Val Kilmer which is marvelous Miles Teller with the most beautifully sculpted moustache and ode to his father I guess in homage to his father Glenn Powell who I think was originally up for the role of Goose and then they gave him Hangman and that works perfectly as a kind of arrogant almost Iceman like character there are comparisons to be made but it's also its own beast of a movie and it deserves to be so and and there's yeah there's there's so much to unpack I shouldn't say unpacked. It's not like it's like that deep. There's not much baggage to the film. There's a lot to. There's so much to look at and so much to enjoy. And I'm going to go and see it again. And I can't wait because I think this time I'm slightly more calm, so I can Mm. just enjoy it for the spectacle it is. And the vibrating seat that you didn't watch in 40x or IMAX or anything. Just a regular old. It was just just vibrating just for me, just for me alone. Um, Luke, does the film introduce a new era of camp, uh, or was it perhaps a little too serious given? current political situations within the world. Camp is not actually a word that I'd use to describe 
this film at all. I think in its opening sections, it does a really good job of maintaining the spirits of the original film. Um, I think Emma mentioned that we launch right into the original Top Gun theme, followed straight away into Danger Zone by Kenny Loggins, and you get almost a um, mimic of the, the opening section of the original Top Gun. You get the, um, the subtitles at the beginning that explains what Top Gun is. You get all those lovely sunset um, shots of the fighter planes landing um, on the, the naval ships. But beyond that, I think the film does a much better job of being more of a standard Tom Cruise action film. Uh, the script was written by Christopher McQuarrie, um, who Tom Cruise has worked with on the most recent Missions Impossible, and I think several other Oh, don't films. forget the classic Mummy as well. Yeah, well, let's, let's you know, let's try and keep it positive. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, unless I'm uh, mistaken and just misremembering, the enemy operation in the film that the pilots have to overcome, um, it was from an unnamed country or unnamed threat. Uh, do you think that was a good ch a choice and good taste, or did it kind of maybe take a bit of bite out of the ending of this film that the original had? Well, I noticed again that, of course, the um, the bandits, as they are in this one, the, the you know the 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 um, rival planes, if you like, again, America get to have jolly painted, you know, personalized helmets, Hangman, Phoenix, Bar, Payback, and of course they're just in like completely black helmets, no personalization there, which is just like the Russian mix in the first one. Um, I think it's probably a sensible choice, isn't it, given the given the geopolitical situation and what this film is trying to be to people. It's not, you know, I think it's probably a sensible choice to make it unnamed. Did it take away some of the drama? I think that was possibly the least dramatic. That was possibly my least dramatic part of the film. Yeah. Was worrying about what was going to happen in 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 the you know in the, in the um. Not much tension for a Cold War esque tension thriller. Not, no? but you well not. I mean, I don't know, having said that, there were moments when I gasped, there were moments when I thought they could, you know, they, 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 let's face it, you mm. know, after um, No Time to Die, anything, nothing is off the table and everything's on the table. So, yeah. you know, it, 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 may, it may take your breath away and surprise you with where it goes. I actually think the lack of giving a country or an enemy country um, fits more with the theme of the film, because whereas the original Top Gun um, is famously jingoistic, it was like a great military propaganda for... Um, the US Navy. But this film, it's, I mean, obviously there's still, you know, the military shown in a positive light, but the film doesn't have that kind of macho jingoism um, that you would have associated with the original. And I think by downplaying whatever the geopolitical threat is, it allows the film to focus more on the relationship between the characters, which is where the heart of it really is. Yeah, no, there, it's, it's definitely. Uh it's definitely not showing the Navy in a 100% good light to the John Hamm character who has to kind of relearn what it is to be human and take, take care of these other people who you're training. Um, on a slightly different topic, like, like Luke mentioned, uh, there's a serial commercial that um, famously emulated the intimacy scene from the original film. I would say it's one of the most uh, amicable intimacy scenes in Hollywood, one of the most amicable ones in Hollywood history. Um, was there mercifully little romance in this film or not nearly enough? Not, well, I, well, I wouldn't say not nearly enough. It was strangely 
sexless compared to the first mm. one because obviously that whoever wherever Kelly McGillis's career has gone since then there is an awesome chemistry between her and Tom Cruise her as the older her as the older lady and, and I mean it, it fizzles off the screen in the scene in the first one where she pulls up in her car and she's like I'm gonna you know I'm gonna finish what I was saying and, and then it you know like you say it is it is a very famous intimate scene so I was disappointed with the lack of of it, it felt it was fairly it was saying i mean no one really had any sort of intimacy in this film not tom not not tom cruise and jennifer connelly which you would maybe expect it from the trailer but also mm. none of the younger guys none of these younger hot shots i mean they've introduced female characters but no one else female fighter pilots if you like but no one was getting no one was getting any of it on and i was a bit disappointed maybe yeah i i couldn't agree more i think the, the real strength of the first film is kelly mcgillis who I think people tend to forget that she was an actual proper actor. She'd done Witness the year before, and she went on to do The Accused. And I think she's the glue that holds Top Gun together. Um, and the relationship with her being Tom Cruise's superior lends the film an interesting progressive tone. Whereas it's more conservative here. You've got Jennifer Connelly plays a just a bar maid. I don't know if that's the, I think, that the owns, right I think to be fair she does own the bar. Yeah, so, yes, you know, it is yeah. her bar, I believe. Um, and she sort of, she pops in and out and she's fine. But this is the only it's the only moment where the script's lacking any wit. You do you do get some nice softer touches of Tom Cruise's character. Mm. Um, and you get moments of almost rom-commy elements. But there's not enough of that to really justify yeah, what's I, in the film. I completely agree. So I would say as well, in the first one, obviously, the heart and soul of it is also Goose. You know, the relationship between... And, and Anthony Edwards is, is absolutely brilliant, in my opinion, as, as Goose. It's been parodied so much afterwards, the idea of, you know, the doomed best friend. But he nails that. And that's that. there isn't that same kind of heart at the centre of this. So instead, it's just replaced with... Um, I, you, you will not see a film with more close-ups. Of, and seeing it in the IMAX, there is a lot of Tom Cruise. And, it, and that's fine, because he can command a screen like probably... There's, there's no one else out there who can command the screen quite as well as Tom Cruise at the moment, I would say. So that's fine. But just be aware that if you are not a massive <laughs> fan of tight close-ups of Tom Cruise, you're in for a lot of them. Well, the, the trailer for Mission, the new Mission Impossible played before my screening. And there's, uh, like uh, Luke says, Christopher McQuarrie is the um, co-screenwriter on this film who helms the new Mission Impossible. There is a moment in the trailer for the new Mission Impossible where someone says Tom Cruise is extinct. The exact same moment is in this film where someone says Tom Cruise is just extinct. Um, the... Uh, talking a bit more about the, the cadets that uh, Tom Cruise has to train, they're kind of... The film's called Maverick. But the cadets are kind of in the background, very much recreating the original film while modern day Maverick deals with his kind of his kind of shtick. Um, are, are are all the cadets just kind of living in Tom's shadow in this, or do they have a chance to get some kind of meat out of the script? I was hoping for more from them, I would say, because obviously, like you said, we've been waiting two full years for this film. So the, and ma the amount of press has been phenomenal because, as you know, they, they, this is the one that's going to get everyone back to cinemas, if you like. So they've, they've been, there's been so much press with those young guys, Lewis Pullman, Jay Ellis, Danny Marimez, Glenn Powell, who's probably the only one I recognise from Everybody Wants Some and a couple of... Romp I mean, Everyone Wants Some, which I just love. But um, Manager Sinto. But I did feel that, like I say, that's where, in the first one... There are there are some really neat lines with slider with you know that it's whip smart really and they didn't they they, they do it and and it, it it's there but they don't really get the opportunity I don't think because this is Mavericks yeah and Rooster I suppose Maverick and Rooster's film 
Uh, just to kind of close out, um, obviously it's it's a big spectacle movie, and it's for me it was delightful to see what I would say is a classic blockbuster on the big screen. Um, do we think this will lose its edge when people are watching it at home? Will it will it live on in the memories of people just watching it on TV? I don't think any more than any other blockbuster. It's definitely a film to see at the cinema if you can. Um, the particularly in when we get into more action-heavy moments of the film, there are some really strong um, touches in terms of the way that they, um, cap they do a lot of camera work within the actual um, the planes, themselves, planes yeah. themselves. And the sound design, I always say that it's really the sound more than the images when you see a film in the cinema is yes. what you're there for. And it, has a, it really has confidence in just having the sound design with either understated or no score whatsoever, which really puts you in the in the scene. Um, in the original Top Gun, they didn't they famously didn't shoot in the in the planes, and I think the fact that they were able to do that in this case lends the film a really cinematic quality. Yeah. Yeah, and real. We were saying, you know, these guys are doing. These guys are in G force at the time, and those faces are quite something else. So. Yeah, they, and. Um just kind of close out. I think it, it's 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 wonderful to see some like fresh new kind of modern take on this kind of action. And uh, Joseph Kaczynski, who's the director, he um, uh, worked on Tron Legacy. Well, I think it was his first big film. So he's he's now got two for two in terms of bringing back franchises from thirty odd years ago. Um, but Top Gun Maverick is a Soviet 12A. It's in its opening weekend, and it's uh, available to see at all three Cambridge cinemas. Now, from the fantastical heights of the stratosphere to the grim reality of a night out gone wrong. So you going out tonight, B? Yeah, got a pass to underground. Are you guys? Yeah, yeah. We're just gonna go to a couple parties and. It took me three weeks of ass kissing just to get into one. Oof, a lot of blood. So... Good thing you didn't get pink eye. <laughs> <laughs> Our legendary tour. We're going to seven parties tonight, bro. Up-and-coming director Carrie Williams brings us his second feature, Emergency, based on his Sundance-winning short film of the same name. When three college students prep for a party of mammoth proportions across the entire campus, an unexpected turn gets them in over their heads, and they must question the wisdom of calling the police. Luke, the film starts with a teacher uh, issuing a trigger warning. Uh, it's certainly not afraid to rest on hot-button topics. Uh, does Emergency have anything fresh to say? I really wanted to like this film, and I thought that opening sequence um, was a really strong attempt at subverting expectations and combining two genres that you wouldn't necessarily um, expect to see together. So you have the political discourse around race relations with one of these sort of all-night party films. Mm. Um, they were Those kinds of films were huge back in the day. They've kind of a fashion a little bit. I think Superbad was probably the last really big all-night party. Or even Booksmart. I did think, I thought of yeah. Booksmart as well, because obviously one of them is ready to go to Princeton. Yeah. Right? It was this idea that we've got mm. to do this, you know, we've worked hard and it's, it's what we deserve, one-night party. Mm. Go on. And... Well, Booksmart is actually a very good comparison piece because you have these two young black characters who, the first time we're introduced to them, they're planning this legendary party of all these um, college fraternities. And then you realise that they're, they're doing their 
thesis or whatever. They're doing some kind of they're trying science to get into thesis. yeah. They're, yeah. they're doing it's not really important what science they're doing. <laughs> you just need to know that they're doing some really important science and they're stuffed with petri dishes that need <laughs> yes. to go into a fridge. <laughs> um, and um, Andre Siler, who plays one of the main characters. I forget what their names were. Sean. Sean. Um, I saw him in Me, Earl and the Dying Girl a few years ago, which I thought that was a really terrific film, and his performance was really good. And he's sort of he's carrying over a similar kind of performance here in terms of this... The strength of the film is between the witty relationship between those two um, characters. Unfortunately, I don't think it really executes... Um, this combination of the two genres. Mm. I think what you always happens with these these films that take um, place over the course of one evening is that at some point it begins to lose your suspension of disbelief and you think, well, you know, this is getting ridiculous now. Surely just do the sensible thing rather than digging yourself deeper and deeper into mm. this hole. And it gets to the point where you just get incredibly frustrated with mm. them and frustrated with the script. And ultimately, I think it's all fizzled out into into not much of anything. Okay, Emma, did you, for, for a film that's based around racial tensions, did you were you did you find it tense? Um, I, yeah, I did a, a little bit. Like Luke, I was halfway through. I was like deeply frustrated. I was just like, this is ridiculous. By this point, they would, of course they would have taken Lost World. I, you know, but he. This sort of almost get out vibe meets book smart or whatever. I think, and and the and it, it's no. I don't think it can be any. Um, any coincidence that the final shot of Kumle, who is... So you've got Sean and Kumle, and Sean is your typical... Well, he's the paranoid stoner who just wants to get out and have a really good night last night. Kumle has gone into Princeton, hasn't found the heart, hasn't found it in his heart yet to tell his best friend that they're going to be spinning up because he's got there. And he's the more studious one, and he's the one who's not, you know, not entirely into this anyway. And I don't think it's any coincidence that the last shot, to me, looked just like Danny Kaluuya in, in, yes. in Get Out. It is, it's, it's, it's framed like that. And actually, although I did find that it tonally kind of went around the houses a bit for me during the film, I did actually think that that last shot uh, really, I, I, I think, m m made its point b better than I was expecting. So it, it came back for me, if you like. I think the beginning was really good, the middle sagged a bit, but at the end, the point that they, you know, the, the way they made that point at the end was really well done. So you don't think, you don't think the, the film sacrificed story and characters in exchange for an overt message? Or you think it all kind of blended together? I think it all blended together. I mean, but part of it, as again, and again, like Lou said, part of the, the charm of this, you also have Sebastian Chet. So you have Dele Donald Elise Watkins. I haven't seen any of these guys in anything. I haven't seen me in Don the Dying Girl. So you have RJ Siler, Donald Elise Watkins, and then Sebastian Chacon, who's playing um, Carlos, who's their Hispanic friend. So like you say, it is three students of color. Very, that's very, very clear. Um, and part of the charm was their riffing off each other because they did, they felt believable as you know as as friends um sean is, is desperate not to get carlos involved because he's the geeky one with the fanny pack and the granola bars but you know at the end it, 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 it at times it's funny it is you know you are laugh, it's laugh out loud funny at bits and and then it is extremely sort of stressful and it's also making a point it didn't bash me over the head quite as hard as i maybe feared it would do with its point <coughs> Uh, in terms of in terms of the uh, the cast like like emma says it's all relatively newcomers did anyone anyone stand out in particular Oh, well, like I say, I thought the, well, as we both mentioned, the three main actors have a really good chemistry with mm. one another. Um, I wasn't particularly familiar with most of them. Um, like I say, RJ Siler was the one that I, I did know. Yeah. Um, and I think him and Donald Elise Watkins 
are very strong in the film. Their, their relationship and the wit that they bring, along with, along with some element of pathos, um, do hold the film together. I think the, the rest of the film is sort of a rogues gallery of plot devices. Yes. Well, yeah, I think because it, it, the, the unconscious girl's sister come is, is, is you know, it becomes this weird chase where they're on like a bike that looks like Stranger Things and they've picked up some guy from one of the frat parties they've been to and it did seem to me that the girl, the two, those two girls, it was just their job to be borderline hysterical the entire time. There was just a lot of shrieking and a lot, and I know, and, but again, the end kind of then brings that home. I, yeah, I, I like I say, I, I, I got to, I'd say three quarters of the way through this movie, like, oh, I'm not sure. And then the last, the end, I was like, ah, now, I, yeah, I, I think this is interesting and I think that's an interesting take and I like what you've done here. Okay. Just to close it out, and uh, we've, we've, Reviewed uh, more than a few Amazon Prime original films on here, uh, most mostly to less than favorable reviews. Does this stand out in the Prime catalog? Deep Water. <coughs> deep water. <laughs> um, yeah, well, I was going to say it, but yes. Compared to Deep Water, which we reviewed on the last show, didn't we? We all almost concurred it was one of the worst things we'd ever seen. Yeah. Then, yeah, I think this is interesting, and I would like. You know, and I, I would certainly say this is a good show to say. I think it's worth seeking out. It's, it's in your Prime subscription. It's an original, and it seems to be a lot... It's a little bit more exciting than, say, where we're going with Netflix originals and other Amazon Prime yes. originals. I, I would agree with that. Even though I was less favourable towards the film, I think perhaps if it if it's, does something that, that you are more satisfied with, I think there's certainly worse films that you could be watching on streaming services. Excellent. So it sounds like it's a moderate thumbs up from here. Definitely check it out if you have a Prime subscription. Uh, Emergency is a certificate 18 and it's available on Prime Video. Cambridge 105 Radio. Monday evenings on Cambridge 105 Radio. Strummers and Dreamers with Les Ray. As there are so many different kinds of folk songs out there. Traditional ballads, shanties, work songs, songs by singer-songwriters of all kinds, my particular thing. You'll get live sessions and interviews by local performers and those from further afield, the big names on the scene and newly emerging independent artists. Lots of new music, some classics and something special just for you. Strummers and Dreamers online whenever you want it and Monday at 7 on Cambridge 105 Radio. Are you suffering from buffering? Find yourself screaming, not streaming? Or do you just lag behind? Then it's time to demand better broadband. City Fibre is building a brand new full fibre network across the UK, giving you access to broadband from a range of providers that's more reliable and up to 20 times faster than average. So you can stream, game and video call without interruption. Get connected to full fibre today. Choose your provider at cityfibre.com slash Cambridge 105. CKLG accountants are a friendly team of accountants and tax advisors with big firm expertise. I'm Lawrence, director of CKLG, responsible for business services. We understand that running a successful business brings many challenges. Our experienced business services team provide a bespoke service and offer professional advice at every stage of your business journey, allowing you the freedom to focus more on what you do best. To find out more, call us on Cambridge 810100 to arrange an initial chat with one of our specialists or visit our website cklg.co.uk cklg accountants your partner in business your partner in life cambridge 105 radio 
You're listening to the Cambridge Film Show on Cambridge 105 Radio. Uh, we're around about halfway through our fortnightly roundup of uh, the latest releases with crime-solving chipmunks and a creepy playgroup on the way. But right now, I hope you're hungry because we're spending some time with Bob, Linda, Tina, Jean and Louise at everyone's favourite restaurant. Oh, boy. Oh, no. Oh, no, no, no. Oh, God. Oh, boy. Dad, I don't want to stop your flow, but can you pass the peel off? Oh, God. That's butter. You know what? Butter's better. You have seven days to make your payment. Seven? It's going to be okay, Bob. Happy, Mm. hopeful, Mm. kissy lips. Scott, please. Louise, don't go down there. It's dangerous. Ah! Did you mean to wave your arms all over the place while falling into the hole? Because if so, you nailed it. Yes, it all went great. The eponymous restaurant Bob's Burgers is in danger of closing after a sinkhole opens up in, in front of the seafront property. The Beltry kids then stumble upon a mystery that may be the only way to save the family business. A host of comedians return to the fray, including H. John Benjamin, also of Archer fame, Kevin Klein, Kirsten Schaal, and Zach Galifianakis. Luke, are you familiar with the Bob's Burgers series at all? Uh, yes, yeah, so I, I watched maybe the first five or six series. I was actually surprised to know that it was still going, because at some point I sort of zoned out and never came back to it. And I was even more surprised to know that they'd made a film because I wasn't aware that it was as popular as it was when we considered the amount of really successful TV shows that don't get films. Um, it, it took The Simpsons, I think, 18 years before they made a film. And um, obviously, Bob's Burgers has gotten to season 12, which is quite an achievement. Um, do you think it's maybe too early to kind of for them to try to reach across? And was, was this a story worth telling on the, as a feature length? I don't think it's a matter of, sort of needing to go on long enough. I think... I remember the argument about when the Simpsons movie came out was that the Simpsons was already well past its prime. Mm. I think the film was 2007. Yeah. Um, and really the Simpsons peaked for most of us around the turn of the century. So by the time the film came out, there was kind of a collective shrug of the shoulders and then thought, well, we might as well see it because we liked the Simpsons 10 years ago. I don't know whether that's the, the case for Bob's Burgers. I mean, the fact that it's still going strong suggests that there is an audience for it. Um, I don't think I've ever heard anyone in my life ever mention having watched it. Yeah. So I was really when I, I saw it last night um, at a reasonably packed cinema. So obviously there is still an appetite, pun intended, <laughs> um, for a Bob's Burgers film. Well, it was at that when I, at my screening, I I was genuinely delighted because we had uh, older people, we had kids, uh, and we had quite a few people who are my age, kind of twenties, thirties, um, and they all just settled down. They kept quiet and they they laughed at all all the appropriate moments. There, I think the two people in front of us just fell asleep because it's. I think Bob's Burgers for a lot of people is just a very much a comfort watch. Um, did you find it funny having coming back to oh, Bob's Burgers after all? I thought it was terrific. Um, I think when you look at the trailers and you look at the style of the show. like It's a very rudimentary animation style. It's not quite South Park, mm. but it's very blocky and it has this very unique, um, idiosyncratic style of doing the animations, which kind of limits what it can do visually. Mm. Obviously, the fact that they've done a film, they're sort of the, up the budget somewhat for the, the animation, but it's still very much in its style. Um, and it does a decent job converting the TV show into a film. I don't necessarily know whether it's particularly cinematic. Mm. It does feel like a 
five-part TV, you know, uh, yes. like a five-part special that's been popped together in one go. But in a way, that's a positive thing, because the comparison to the Simpsons movie earlier, th when they made that film, they did a really extraordinary, extravagant plot where, you know, there was the dome and the road trip, and it was really high concept, yeah. and it lost what was good about the film. Whereas in this case, it really sticks to the roots, or the roots at least of the show that I remember. Um, and it has... It, allows the characters to be funny in the circumstances that you remember them being funny doing. And I re I did laugh plenty of times that the cinema audience seemed to really enjoy it as well. Mm. Um, did you, going back to the animation side, because I, I, I think Bob's Burgers was kind of infamous when it started because it had a lot of people complained that in the first season that the animation style wasn't very good. There's lots of digital zooms and blocky. I actually think the animation style got very good very quickly, which is one of the merits of the shows for me. Um, but one of, the, one of the things I think draws a lot of people is, and as well as uh, the creator of the show, the co-creator of the show, Lauren Bouchard, has said that he's very, he's very fond of what's called the Bollywood effect, I believe, where it's if you end... If you end your movie with all the cast coming together and singing and dancing, then everyone leaves every episode. Every every everyone leaves that film singing and dancing and in a happy mood. So every single episode ends on a usually a cracking song. Um, and there's no uh, there's I think there's about four songs throughout the rest of the, throughout the whole film. I personally haven't stopped singing "Sunny Side Up Summer" since I watched it yesterday. It is such an earworm. Um, did you think the the music was kind of up to snuff? Yeah, I was actually surprised when the characters started singing. Because I do remember the, the TV show did, you know, it did dabble in doing musical elements. But when about 20 minutes in, it's like, oh wait, is this a musical? I didn't know. And I think there's not enough songs in it for it to be classed as a musical. And it does a decent job sort of interspersing them somewhat regularly so that when they do start singing, it's not mm. that unusual. Um, but I think that the songs, like the tone of the comedy itself, is just really good-natured and fun and um, witty. Yeah. And I think I think it, it fits together nicely. Um, I think it's just nice. Yeah. Bob's Burgers is a nice film. That's the thing. It is very nice. It's mm. very comfortable. I, I, I think some people will come away from the film wishing there were more songs, but... I think, like I said, there's only four songs. One, there's one at the start and then one every 30, 40 minutes or so. But I think the standard of the songs is so good um, that it was, it's worth kind of saving that, saving the reserves. Um, did, you, did it kind of pull at your heartstrings at all? I mean, I'm, I'm a little bit dead inside. So, <laughs> oh, dear. So, nope, you know, it does, it does a decent job. I think the, the belts for kids are all really sweet. And yeah. it's nice to see a TV show where the family all gets along and there's not a ton of that kind of external conflict. Um, and they all get a chance to do some nice things. Louise, who I think is most voiced by Kristen Schaal, mm. is probably everyone's favourite character, perhaps, yeah. in the show. And I think she she has some really sweet moments in the film. Um, and that's where the, the emotional heart is. And you know, it worked a little bit, but it's you know, it's not it's not high drama. No, yeah, there's there's not much interpersonal conflict. I agree, but I agree, everyone everyone definitely gets the chance to shine. Um, it sounds like a thumbs up from Luke. Uh, I couldn't recommend it enough. Go see it, even if you even if you aren't familiar with the show, it's just such a wonderful experience to watch in the cinema. Um, Bob's Burgers, the movie or the Bob's Burgers movie, um, is a certif certificate PG and a screening at the View and Light Cinemas. 
Now for a fully animated film from a fully animated film uh, in which uh, to a film in which two animated characters do the best to survive in a live action world. What's the first thing that pops into your head when I say Chip and Dale? I bet it's these guys. But certainly the second would be those rascally cartoon chipmunks, Chip and Dale. What if I did something like I am into nuts. <laughs> good, good. I love it. Great stuff. Just want to remind you guys, I'll be at FanCon this afternoon. Hey, watch out! I'm keeping myself fit. For those who may forgivably not remember, Chip and Dale Rescue Rangers was a short-lived children's cartoon from the early 90s. And if you don't remember them, well, that's kind of the joke. This new film revolves around the beloved chipmunks as if they were real-life character actors who now struggle to get by in the modern world. When their old castmate Monterey Jack, now a cheese addict, if you can imagine that, uh, is kidnapped by an evil gangster, it's up to the duo to solve the case and bring balance to the world of recognizable IPs. Um, seeing as we have a bona fide youngster in the studio today, Miles, uh, what, if anything, did you know of Chippendale? Uh, I know you now eager to see more. So, before seeing this movie, I had never heard of either of them. Um, so... I kind of get a fresh perspective on it. So I don't see this as a nostalgic movie to watch and remember things. I kind of saw it as... I saw it as a funny kind of... Not really cliché, but that's not the right word. Um, it's a funny movie about two people trying to get by as cartoon actors yeah. who have to be police people for a bit. Down to yeah, like uh, taking kind of cliches, but in this kind of out, out of out of this out of this world kind of context. Um, Stu, uh, the the film certainly has a lot has a little something for everyone. Um, but who do you think was the tar- target demo for this? This is where I think it gets a bit messy. I think uh, someone tricked Disney into producing this because it's it seems to have been created by people uh, of my age, so mid thirties, um, who remember. Chippendale fondly, but have just taken the IP um, and have said, "Well, actually, let's let's have some fun with this. Let's really sort of wander away from the uh, the childhood nostalgia and and make it its own creature." Which they have done. They've made a whole um, new spin on it, like like you say, by making it look like uh, they aren't actually Chippendale. They never were. They were just actors portraying the characters. Um, uh, and and then you've got this whole sort of cheese addiction thing that feeds into that, and and that sort of uh, sort of makes it cheese appear like a like a, a drug or something. It's it suddenly sort of makes it feel a bit more like a stoner movie. So it looks like these people in the thirties have made this. Who and you know, for example, we've got some um, Seth Rogen's in it, of course, who is. Seth Stoner movie royalty, um, and it, and he helps sort of sort of solidify that view that actually this is made by a bunch of people who might well very well have young families of their own. So they may have they've made these films for those young families, but through the lens of that sort of Stoner movie humor, and I and I think it, it's 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 an odd choice that Disney chose to make it and allowed it to be made in this way. But I think it really works. So Harold and Kumar go to Disneyland kind of vibes. Yes, yes. <laughs> uh, Luke, does this? Um there's obviously been a lot of if you watch the film there's um, a lot of IPs not just from Disney um, but from kind of it looks like there's lots of arrangements made with other IPs uh, a certain uh, cartoon character shows up that I won't spoil at this moment um, as a, a very reminiscent of Who Framed Roger Rabbit so does this film hold up as a kind of spiritual successor to that film? I think so definitely uh, Who Framed Roger Rabbit is one of my favourite films um, and I had no idea what I was getting into with Chip and Dale so in the first five minutes, I went, oh, okay, they're just doing Who Framed Roger Rabbit. 
also a, a lesser degree if anyone remembers Looney Tunes back in action from the, the turn of the century. So the idea isn't unprecedented and it's not like they're necessarily stepping on hallowed ground by doing this. And I think it does a really good job of what it's doing. Um, I was surprised how not depressing it was just <laughs> seeing this film that's like this corporate megalith of mm. all these childhood uh, icons put on screen together and you think, goodness me, th is this what cinema is now? Where it's just a conglomerate, con conglomeration of all these things that we used to love. And it avoids doing that thing where, you know, basically it's like pointing to one character and going, look, there's that thing you love from that other thing, so therefore you like this thing. I think it's more intelligent than that with what it's doing. Um, and I don't necessarily know whether it goes as far as to being social commentary on intellectual property, hmm. but it's at the very least funny. Well, I, I was shocked to see that I actually did laugh quite a bit, and um, it's it's uh, directed by one of the Lonely Island um, alumni, Akiva uh, Schaffer, uh, and obviously stars Andy Samberg. Um, uh, a lovely island. Lonely Island have many songs that we of names we can't say on on air. Uh, but uh, Emma, do you think this was a cleverly engineered film for fans of the original show who are now adults, or do you think kind of like Stu that uh, it's people trying to get away with being a bit naughty? I'm going to say I don't think it's either of that. In our house, we are huge fans of both Andy Samberg from Brooklyn Nine Nine mostly, and also John Mulaney from his voice work in Big Mouth. Mm. So. I would go as far as to say that I think it's a movie made for fans of the Lonely Island guy. You know, the Lonely Island guy is like pop star never stop popping or whatever it was that movie they made with that. I, yeah, it's. I, I laughed, I, and I think a lot of it is the charm of, of, of that of that voice acting. You've also got you've got Eric Banner in this. You've got Will Arnett in this. You've got some really top notch talent voicing these characters, and yeah. you know. Chip and Dale are pretty cute as well at the end of the day. But I'm not, I mean, I'm the oldest person, as, as we talk about, I know I always go on about it, don't I? I shouldn't do, but I'm the oldest person in the studio and I would I would have been a bit too old probably, but I also don't think Chip and Dale were ever that big in the UK. So I don't think you're going to have a massive Rescue Rangers core fan base in the UK. So I would say watch it if you like the Lonely Island guys or if you're an Andy Sandberg fan. Yeah, I think, I think I'd agree with that. Is that um, I didn't come to that film as a as a huge Chippendale fan back in the 90s when I was a kid. If anything, my memories of, of the, that franchise are brief and flitting because I didn't have uh, the Disney Channel on Sky when I was that age growing up. And that's, I think, predominantly where those shows really sort of originated from in the area, in, in a time where having cable and satellite was what the, what the posh family down the road might have had. <laughs> I, what I really loved as well, I love the fact that some of the baddies were those um, were from that era of Robert Zemeckis yes. filmmaking the whole. And I don't, I don't think this necessarily spoiler so much, but yeah, the whole Beowulf, Polar Express, three um, D, you know, Christmas Carol. I just that really, really tickled me. That, that because yeah, that, that I live having lived through that period where everyone's like, this is going to be the future animation. Everyone's like, whoa, it's super creepy. <laughs> I like that. They really take the Mickey out of it during yeah. the film, yeah. it? rightfully it really, so, because exactly. it was deeply creepy. The, the question I would ask. Um, is that it seems like it's a film that's designed for the, you know, the Chippendale legacy fans or at the very least of 30-somethings who grew up with Chippendale and now they want a film where they can indulge in liking Chippendale but doing it with a kind of cold, detached irony that makes it acceptable to watch it when you're an adult. But it does feel like it's also trying to appeal to children 
Now, I, I don't have a particularly strong ear for what children like these days, but there was a point about an hour into the film where it really becomes that kind of more Pixar-y kind of zany adventure thing where, you know, got bright lights and jumping around and sort of this action set piece. And yep. that's where it began to lose me because, you know, I wanted jokes and I, I actually found the, the mystery at the heart of a film actually quite captivating. So I was disappointed when it veered towards being a children's film again. And it, in a way, that sort of broke the spell for me. Mm. Well, uh, Miles, did you, did you find it funny? I found it... I really liked it, personally. I thought the jokes were all very funny. I do kind of agree with the point that it lost the... It kind of became more Pixar-esque about heart an hour through. But I do think that a lot of the jokes, when you watch it, you can see there's a lot of stuff, a lot of jokes for that children would enjoy, so quite young children. Um, I am saying this as if I am not a child, but <laughs> <laughs> but there's also quite a lot of advanced, like, it's really, the premise is actually quite dark when you think about it. And when, with the whole mystery, and there's a lot of stuff that would go over, like, young children's head when they, heads when they watch it. So I feel like, but I feel like the comedy, they've balanced it out quite well with the uh, more adult humour in it. And I feel like it overall makes the tone of the movie feel a lot, feel quite consistent mm. and yeah it doesn't it doesn't veer too far into the childish side of things okay it sounds like everyone's uh, everyone's find it found it quite funny yeah i think if I, if I had to wrap it up and say one thing about it i would say it's it's yes it's a family film that's what it's supposed to be but the people who made it knew very well what they were doing with it <laughs> um so it, just one last point it does uh Everyone, everyone's kind of giving a pass, uh, but do we think that following Deadpool, are we getting maybe a bit sick of meta narratives, or is this one? It would be so good to pass to this one. No, I think Luke. I mean, and, and Luke kind of really made this point. I think let's not forget the whole noir aspect of this, and also we barely touched on it. But the mixture of animation mm. in this is really interesting. You know, the, the chip has chip. No, Dale's had the CGI surgery, hasn't he? And chip hasn't. So you've got this whole thing with the with CGI and live action and all different kinds of animation. And I, I, no, I, I didn't feel that it was, like, overly meta like Deadpool. I, I, it, was, it was fun. It's fun. It's, on, it's there on your Disney Plus subscription, which, unless you're probably, you know, dead, you have to have because everything's on Disney and you've probably got it for, you know, Obi-Wan, if nothing else. So, yeah, you know, go ahead. It, it, there are plenty worse ways to spend an hour and a half, particularly, I think, to watch as a family. Plenty worse ways to spend an afternoon. Chippendale Rescue Rangers is nonetheless a uh, certificate PG, and it's streaming on Disney+. Plus. Uh, finally, let's turn our attention to Norway for a chilly fantasy horror. Writer-director Eskil Vogt uh, has gained a lot of acclaim this year, not just as the director of this festival hit, uh, but as co-writer of Cambridge film show favourite The Worst Person in the World. Uh, veering away from modern romance, however, the innocence leads us down a particularly dark path as a group of children experiment with their mysterious powers when the adults aren't looking. Emma, I was... Um, it's pretty it's pretty rare I watch a film that um, sends shivers down my spine, but this one I did think was genuinely upsetting in moments. Um, were you scared of these alleged innocents? 
Um, well, I wasn't scared of them exactly. I was deeply disturbed by them, shall we say. I came to this so far. We're now sitting at the end of May, and I'm not going to count, count Top Gun 2, but The Worst Person in the World is probably my favourite film of the year so far. Mm. I just loved it. So I was really excited to come to this. And I think it is a really stylish, really original, really chilling film because you know the yeah the, 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 the premise is there are these four kids they're living in this sort of unnamed or, or unlocated Norwegian tower um, you know housing estate I presume it's like a tower block I presume it's somewhere probably near Oslo and like you say they are Neglect, they're all sort of neglected to a certain extent, some of them worse than others. You know, so there, there are a couple of single-parent families who aren't able or choose not to really look after their children as they can. And like you say, as these psychic powers come, it, it starts off sort of... Yeah, it starts off, you're thinking, oh, this is, you know, is going to keep them entertained. And then one of the children in particular... Um, it, it starts to get very dark and so they have to come together to try and work out how to do this. I think that... Um, what I really liked about this was, the, the, I think the child acting in this, either they were brilliantly directed or they, because um, I think this is his debut, right, as a director? Yes, I believe Yeah, so. they're either brilliantly directed or they're amazing naturals because the three, the, the four core um, child performances are brilliant. The filming is, it, it's all in, it's sort of, sort of on these bright Nordic summers. It gave me a feeling it wasn't even 2022. Apart from a, a mobile phone, these kids could, it could have been the 70s. Mm. The, the, it, 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 and it's just that banality, that... The banality of the cruelty of children, I think, is what comes through in this and how that can become... And, and where does the line between what children might do because they're bored compared to what children might do because they're really evil, where, you know, where, where does that come from? Um, well, Miles, it's um, it's a two-hour-long movie and uh, atmosphere and horror film can be quite difficult to sustain. For you, were there any gaps in the tension? I feel like... So, for the beginning of the movie, and most of the way throughout, I feel like the way they managed to shoot everything, the audio direction, made everything feel empty and kind of uh, desolate, which yeah. game, which is really unsettling, especially when paired in with the more gruesome, quite uh, honestly quite tense moments of the film. And I feel that, however, at some points in the movie, the powers it tries to go for a more horror vibe at some points but those moments um almost few not they're kind of few and far between mm. and it kind of feels like with the atmosphere presented in the rest of the movie they the more horror-esque mo moments don't feel like they should kind of be there okay if you see what i mean Do, there were, there were, yeah there's there's definitely no shortage of like um Stomach training moments. Uh, do we did, did it rely on the the shock factor a little too much? Maybe. I no, I don't think so because they're not. There aren't. There are maybe three moments that I had to watch through my fingers, or I gasped. I mean, there, there is one point where I actually did. Just, oh God! They, and I think that they're very well timed and very well placed because then at the end, I think it's really quite a brave ending because the ending itself. And I know we feel differently about this, look at <laughs> yeah. The ending itself felt. It, it, it was a much more, like I say, almost banal. It's like this banality of horror. I really, I really, really liked it, and I thought I'm thinking a lot yeah. about it, which um, yeah. I don't. I wouldn't necessarily say I come away from a film with it haunting me quite that much. Well, Master, do you get much out of the ending? I feel that the ending. I feel the mo moments we're talking about, the gruesome moments. They should have saved one for the ending, and kind of, kind of helped it end more because it ends in a very. Anticlimactic, not anticlimactic. It's very, un yeah, actually no, anti anticlimactic is the right word. It's quite an anticlimactic climax, which is a bit strange for the kind of 
it gets darker as the movie goes on, mm. and then the dark tone is just dropped for the ending. I think I'm just going to close out, as you would say, very quickly say also this is a film about the horror of neglect, of bad parenting, of this, of, and, and of just children not quite knowing what, what to make of their emotions. It's a really clever, it's a really clever film. There is, I think, I, I do agree to a certain extent. I think it is very interesting and there is very um, gut-wrenching moments in it. Um, there's certain visuals that are very striking that come out of nowhere as well. Yeah. Um, and it has, it has a, a nice kind of... Um, early uh, David Cronenberg kind of minimalist, horrible things happening to people in minimalist, minimalist yeah, settings. Yeah, kind of brutalist architecture yes. with the camera always set at that kind of child's eye view as well yeah. and, and then you suddenly see it up and you just see it and yeah, I, I thought it was really, really interesting. Yeah. I would agree. The, I think the camera works for them very well. Well, uh, The Innocence is a certificate 15 uh, and it's available on Amazon as a home premiere. Um, it's actually turned out to be a fairly positive week across the board. Um, I'm afraid that's all the time we have for this week on the Cambridge Film Show. Uh, join us on the 11th of June, where we'll be getting intimate with Emma Thompson and good luck to you, Leo Grand. Uh, and we tag along with the original Dino Gang of Sam Neill, Laura Dern, and Jeff Goldblum in the final chapter of the Jurassic World trilogy, Dominion. Till then, it's goodbye from our reviewers. Goodbye. Bye. Bye. Goodbye. That's goodbye from me. 